Hunger Games. We're looking at the hungers of the heart. Today we look at the hunger for grace. Pray with me. Father God, thanks for the chance to worship you. Thanks for the chance to worship by uh, expressing to you what we love about your grace. But Father, now we want to turn to worshiping you by listening to you. Turn to worshiping you by listening uh, to your word, uh, learning from you. But as we learn it, we don't just want to inform the mind. We want you to shape us as people. As your children, would you work in us as we study it together? And all God's people said, Amen. Good morning. Good morning. There you go. Just got to let me know that you're awake. All right? All right. Turn to John chapter 8 today. John chapter 8. If you're new, I'm Pastor Dale. It's a great chance to study through our series called The Hunger Games. We're looking at the hungers of the heart and how the person of Jesus is revealed in John, in the, in especially John 4 to John 11, in a series of great stories that express and reveal to us and really expound to us the person of Jesus, but then how he applies to those hungers. So open the word together. You know, as we open the word, let me ask you a question. Now think about this. What is the worst thing, and don't shout out your answer, what is the worst thing that you've ever done in your life? I said you can keep it to yourself, all right? If you want to whisper it to the person next to you, that's okay, but don't, you don't have to do that. Just think. Seriously. We've all done stuff that we regret. We've all done stuff that made us feel shamed, Right? But take it to a next level. What is the worst thing that you've thought about doing or been tempted to do? Now, if you are thinking of that right now and you're thinking, yeah, I've thought about doing that, but I would never do it. Be aware that you may indeed. Now play this scenario out a little more with me and ask this question. Now, what if you did it? What if you did that thing that you have thought about doing but not done? And you didn't just do it, but imagine now if you did it and you got caught. To make it a little worse, okay, I'm depressing some of you right now, but hang with me. It'll get better by the end of the message. You don't only get caught, but it goes public. It doesn't just go public in that a few people know about it, but all your family, all your friends, anyone on your Facebook page, okay, it goes viral across the media, across Facebook. Everybody in town knows it. Now imagine how you feel. And then imagine that you are brought in front of a crowd, a crowd that say, imagine this room packed out. Imagine this room packed out and somebody, for some reason, brings you into the room and announces what it is you did. And in the midst of the embarrassment and shame of that, imagine that they bring you to the front for everyone to focus on. And as the crowd parts, 
and you're right here with every eye on you, you recognize that the person sitting in front of you is Jesus. What would that be like? How would that make you feel? What do you think would happen? The scenario I've just painted is today's story. It really happened. It happened to a single woman A woman who had, uh, for whatever reason, um, been caught in the act of adultery. Perhaps that was her lowest moment of her life. Perhaps that was her most shameful moment. She had been caught in the very act of adultery and now she's paraded in front of a crowd and everyone knows that she's guilty and she's not even challenging it because she knows she did it. And in the culture she's living in, we're going to see in a minute that the prescribed treatment for this woman could even include public stoning to death. And she's surrounded by a crowd who wants to see an execution. And then she engages Jesus. Let's listen to the story. Because we're going to see what we learn from it, not just for her sake. But imagine now, if you were her, and you had done that most shameful thing that you've ever been tempted to do, whether you did it or not. Imagine if that were you. All right, let's go. Here we go. Here's the story. Romans, not Acts, not Romans, but John. John chapter 8, pick it up in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... And early in the morning, he again came to the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them, a huge crowd in the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the room, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing Jesus, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now just kind of pull up for a minute and let me paint the scenario for you, because we understand from the story that their motive first is to trap Jesus. Their motive really isn't justice for this woman or or to teach the community an important lesson about the dangers of adultery or anything else. Their motive, it says, is they were testing or trying to trap Jesus. Now, why would they do that and why is this such a good trap? Well, the reason they're doing it is because we know that they're against the movement that Jesus is launching. These religious leaders have been against him in almost every story we've been studying through the book of John, right? And they're always trying to trap Jesus. And this, they felt, was a great idea and a great trap. And the reality is, it is a great trap. Now, why does this trap Jesus or appear to trap him? So you've got to understand the background going on to understand that. I think it's for two reasons. One is, Jesus had built a reputation of being the friend of sinners. He's referred to by that. When other people wouldn't hang out with people with 
questionable lifestyles, Jesus went to their parties. Jesus engaged them. Jesus talked to them. Jesus was known for being a person that reached down to women who were prostitutes or, or men who were working for the government, ripping people off uh, in tax scams and all kinds of stuff. You know, Jesus befriended the people that were on the outside fringes of the Christian or the Jewish lifestyle. And he was known for that. He was a lover of the down and out. He was known for his love and compassion. So now, will he follow the law? So on the one hand, Jesus is known for being a man full of this mercy and grace that the masses love about him. But Jesus also was a man who had declared that he obeyed God. He obeyed the law of God. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount earlier, Jesus had said this, I come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Every jot and tittle, every little bit of the law, I will follow it. So Jesus is on record as being obedient to the law of God. And you've got to realize, Jesus is living under the Old Testament law. <clears throat> so why is this a dilemma for Jesus? Well, it's a dilemma for a couple of reasons. Let me give you a verse in uh, Leviticus chapter 20, for example. Let me read this to you. I'll show it to you later on the screen, but this time I just want to read it. If you go to the law and you say, well, where's this idea come from? That if you're caught in adultery, that you should be perhaps stoned to death. Here it is. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In fact, over in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, it, it defines that death very well may be by stoning. In fact, it goes on in Leviticus to give a, a series of different serious sexual sins. Uh, it mentions homosexuality as well. In verse 13, it says, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, and they shall surely be put to death. So whether it's adultery or homosexuality or, or, or you know, or, you know th these sexual sins were taken very seriously in the Jewish culture. In the Old Testament law, they were indeed prescribed as being worthy of death. Now, not only those, but there were other things prescribed as being worthy of death. Things that may surprise you, such as engaging or acting as a spiritual medium or, 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 or trying to, to, to connect with other gods and, and, and exercising as a spiritual medium would be prescribed as worthy of death. And, and in the passage, you have to understand that the reason it's taken so seriously is actually given to us in Leviticus uh, 20.22. And this is why. He says, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances. This is right after a list of all these sins that are worthy of death. He says, and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you. This was prescribed before they, before they inherited their own land, which we studied in the book of Joshua. Before they had a land so they could be a people, so God could pour his love and wisdom and grace out upon the, the people of Israel so that they might be a blessing to the entire world. In other words, God was raising up a nation in which he would have a special relationship where they could show the world the, the, the truth of God and the advantage of walking with God in obedience to God and 
following his rules and his law. And, and, and therefore it says, therefore, make sure you follow these rules. Moreover, you shall not follow, verse 23, the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, meaning all these uh, horrendous things. They did human sacrifice. They did uh, sexual sin was very common in the, in the pagan cultures that were living in the land. And God says, I'm going to drive them out. But you know, some, some of them will probably still be hanging around to influence you. Don't go there. You need to be different than these other pagan nations that don't follow me and, and don't engage in these very serious sins that will wreck your life and, and, and because you are to be my people. Therefore, he says, they did all these things and I have abhorred them. Since I have said to you, you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you. A land flowing with milk and honey. But I am to be your God who has separated you from these peoples. Verse 26, Leviticus 20, 26. Thus you are to be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples so that you might be my people. So you realize that in history, what there's more going on here than God saying, all right, this is the prescribed penalty for adultery. Now, if most of us were writing the penalties for adultery, we probably would not prescribe stoning. Can I just admit that? I am not of the stoning camp. And I am thankful, by the way, that in the New Testament now that says we do not live under Old Testament law, but we live under grace and we live under the Word of God, uh, you know, and, and we are free from these type details of the Old Testament law. But what I wanted you to understand was I don't want to dodge the fact that, yes, this was the prescribed treatment. And God's law was clear. But God had a purpose in human history. Why? He was trying to create a people that exhibited holiness and understood the joy of sexuality the way God had designed it. And therefore, yeah, you know, adultery is, is a painful thing that wrecks lives. And you and I, by the way, know that it's still true today. So God took it very seriously, probably more seriously than we do. At least the penalty was more severe. But see, they had Jesus, they thought. Because either Jesus who said, I will endorse and follow the law. I'm, you know, I am the Son of God. I'm, you know, I did not come to, fulfill, to throw out the law, but to fulfill it. And, and, and now Jesus, uh, if, he, if he sides with them and says, yes, you're right, stone her, he's going to lose favor with the people who love grace and compassion and mercy, right? Or if he, if he, if he says, no, the law is wrong, then, you know, then he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna show himself as disobedient to the law of God. So Jesus, they think, is in a trap. Point two. But obviously Jesus sees the hypocrisy in what they're doing. Because for one thing, adultery takes two people. Last time I checked my dictionary on adultery, especially adultery caught in the very act. To catch someone in the very act of adultery implies that there was a guy there, right? And where's the guy? Where's the man? By the way, it's interesting. When you look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all these severe punishments that are laid out, they always address the man first as the one primarily responsible. They always begin with language that says, if any man be blah, 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 
If any man, boo, if any man, boo, if any man, boom, you know, then these are the penalties. And, you know, and, and yes, the penalties included the woman also, but it always placed the greatest responsibility on the man. Where's the guy? How many of you are already thinking that? Yeah. So Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing their motive, responds. And he responds, and if I were to capture it in, in a phrase, he responds with what I call a heavy mixture, a creative mixture of grace and truth. Here's how he responds. Let's pick up the story again. Go back to it. John chapter 8. Got to get back there. Here's his response. So they say, so Jesus, what should you do? But Jesus, knowing they were testing him, Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, Jesus, what should we do? Jesus, give us an answer. Give us an answer. They're persisting. He, then he straightens up and he says to them. So you've got to picture this now. They're asking for an answer. Jesus is ignoring them while he writes in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. But it says, and as they persisted, so we know that he wrote long enough that they got impatient with him. And they said, hey, Jesus, are you going to answer us or not? You know, so he just keeps writing in the dirt. He's ignoring them. And finally, when they persist long enough and he's written long enough, he straightens up and he says this. He who is without sin among you, and I think he's pointing to what he just wrote in the dirt, most likely, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he stoops down and he writes more. I love this. So they're kind of thinking, how do we respond to that? You know. So he hasn't really answered our question. So Jesus continues to write more in the dirt, and, and, and they're not sure how to answer, but here's what happens. As he continues to write, it says this, and when they heard Jesus' response, they began to go out of the temple one by one, beginning with the older guys. Now, why, you know, uh, it's interesting. The older men get it before the young guys. Now, I can't tell you why. But the older guys get it first, and then the younger guys follow, and they just begin to leave until Jesus was left alone with the woman, where she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus then said to her, so he's still writing, straightening up, Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Look up. Did no one condemn you? No one, Lord, she says. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Boom. Now this is Jesus and his masterful self. Full of grace and truth. So what's the significance of this Jesus full of grace and truth moment? What do we learn from it that we could apply to our lives as well? Let me, let me unpack four ideas right from the story that I think apply to me. Maybe they apply to you as well. Number one, Jesus respects the law. 
He's living under God's law. He respects the law, but he appeals to a higher law, the law of love. Now, why do I say that? I see, Leviticus 20.10 says this. Here it was again. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, uh, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That is the prescribed and just penalty. Although I can't prove what Jesus wrote, what I think Jesus did was, I think he said, guys, have you read Leviticus 19? Because if you go from Leviticus 20.10, you've got to understand, those students of the law, they memorize the law. And you go back to Leviticus 19, only one chapter before this list of all the things that you can punish with death, and here is what you find. Leviticus 19, I'll give you the highlights, 15 to 18. You shall, this is part of the law too, you shall do no injustice in your judgment. Was it just for her to be brought alone? You shall not be partial, that is, to men versus women, rich versus poor. You shall not act against the life of your neighbor. Don't try to harm your neighbor. You shall not hate in your heart. You shall not incur sin because of the other person who has sinned. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge against other people. And then he says this, verse 18, But instead of all these things, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. And he says, and by the way, sexual sin is very serious. And yes, here are the serious penalties for sexual sin and other sins that we need to to watch out for, that we might purge them from our nation, that we might not do evil, that we might not become like the other pagan nations, that we might live a life that's different because our God is different. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I got a feeling, I think Jesus, if I were to speculate, he just went down to the dirt and he wrote, see Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor Perhaps pointing to the woman as you love yourself. Is this the way you want to be loved whenever you've fallen into adultery or any other sin or whatever your personal sin is? Jesus had them. See, Jesus didn't ignore the law. He used the higher law that all the rest of Old Testament law submits to. Here's how I know that's true. Matthew 22, 26, Jesus was asked again when they were trying to trap him, so what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said what? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and he quotes this verse, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor the way you want to be loved. See, Jesus uses the highest law to dictate how they apply the rest of the law. He had them. See, this may be what Jesus wrote. I can't prove it, but I think he either did that, perhaps some, some have speculated he wrote other sins, like thou shalt not lust, thou shalt not have anger, thou shalt not have pride. In other words, sins of the heart that everyone knew they were guilty of. But I like my version. Okay, as long as I'm giving the sermon, this is what he wrote. 
<laughs> Check it out, okay? Today, I'm thankful we don't live under Old Testament law. So even though the Scriptures very clearly say that we are free from the Old Testament law, in other words, we don't have to follow these type detailed Old Testament laws, I am thankful that Jesus reaffirmed that the essence of the law is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we apply that to anything else, life works. I love this about Jesus. Number two, Jesus also uses the law whatever he wrote in the dirt, to humble and stimulate their compassion. To humble their hearts and stimulate their compassion. And that's what the law does if it's understood correctly. Romans 3.19, for example, I'll give you this verse, says this. Romans 3.19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, and this was referring to the Old Testament law, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed. So that every that is, prideful person that thinks they're good enough gets their mouth shut up. That's the idea. It's, every mouth may be closed, that all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law or obedience to the law, no person, no flesh will be justified before God in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The, the law doesn't make us righteous. It actually reveals our unrighteousness. The law doesn't fix us. It shows us how broken we all are. See, the law is designed to humble us so we understand that whatever your secret sin is, we're all sinners. And in the eyes of God, Jesus himself at one point said, you know, yeah, don't commit adultery, but realize if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Don't murder, but you know, don't you realize if you get angry in your heart, you've murdered in your heart. In other words, God looks at the heart, not just our actions. Now, it's true, by the way, if you're going to choose to either get angry or murder me, please get angry, okay? I can handle that, all right? Don't murder me, okay? Now, it's true that lust is, has, has lesser consequences than adultery, but, but the reality is in the eyes of a holy God, we all are so sinful. We have nothing that we should be proud of. Jesus humbles this audience and hopefully he stimulates their compassion. Because when you realize our sinfulness and you realize the grace of God, it should cause us to have more compassion for the person who commits the sin that you said, I would never do that. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 is my reference. I've got it in your outline, I think. If not, write it down. Number two. Because it stimulates my compassion. In essence, Titus 3, 3-7, through 7, if I were to summarize it, says this, referring to those who do not believe in our faith and do not live by our lifestyle and our standards. It says, we also once were foolish ourselves, but he saved us. Not by works that we have done in the flesh, but by His mercy, by His kindness, by His grace. So what it really teaches me is the truth of a saying I grew up with in West Virginia. See if you can complete the sentence. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Say it. There, but by the grace of God go I. Now think of the worst sin that you thought of at the beginning of my sermon that you said, oh, I've thought about that, but I would never do that. 
I, I shouldn't have all of you just shout them out. But I'm not going to do that. But think about it. Because the fact of the matter is, as soon as you say, I would never do that. There but by the grace of God go you and go I. If we look at this woman who had been caught in adultery, we don't know her backstory. We don't know what led to that. We don't know what was going on. The reality is she was wrecking her own life and the lives of others. It's a nasty sin that is destructive on relationships. But as soon as you or I say, I would never do that, not like this woman, then you are, you are deceiving yourself. Could I commit adultery against my wife, Becky? After this summer, we celebrate 40 years together. We were married at the age of 11. <laughs> she was 10, I was 11. We get married young in West Virginia. And she was not my cousin. Let me just say that too, okay? Now, we're a little bit older than that, but not much. But, you know, after 40 years of marriage, could I commit adultery against this lady and disgrace myself? in the eyes of my kids and my grandkids. I'd like to think, I would never do that. Sure, I could do that. I could do that in a heartbeat. If Jesus Christ wasn't in my life, and if His grace and His Spirit weren't working in my life, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be cheating on my wife in a heartbeat because all there is to life is as much fun as I can get out of it. And if there's no consequences beyond this life and in it, why not? See, what happens is Jesus, I think, is wanting to stimulate our compassion as a church for people that do things that we say we would never do. That's at the heart of the story. And first he has to humble us to realize, hey guys, we're all sinners. And then he needs to challenge us. One of my favorite books. If you want to read one book that will change your life on grace. If you haven't read the book, just read it. Okay, it's next to the Bible. This is one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Philip Yancey wrote a book a few years ago, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a great read. He begins the book with this story. He says... I heard a story from a friend of mine who works with the down and out in Chicago. And this is what his friend told him. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she confessed to me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in, and I'm not going to complete the sentence, She said she did it because she made more renting her out for an hour than she could earn the whole night by herself. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked this woman if she had ever thought about going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look on the look of pure and naive shock that crossed her face. Church? <laughs> she cried. Why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Yancey goes on to say this. What struck me about my friend's story is that women much like this prostitute, they fled toward Jesus, not away from him. 
The worse a person felt about him or herself, the more likely she was to see Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on the earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What's happened? The more I pondered this question, the more I felt drawn to one word as the key. All that follows uncoils from that one word. Grace. The absence of it. You see, Jesus is wanting to stimulate our humility, and then stimulate our compassion for Encinitas, Carlsbad, Del Mar, for Africa, for the world that is trying to figure life out without Jesus. A world that is desperate for a place where they come and and they experience grace. That's exciting. Number three, Jesus hates all sin. Why does he say go and sin no more? Well, it's because he hates sin, because sin robs us of life. Sin robs us of life. I'm not going to read, Apple, this entire quote that follows, but I'll give you the beginning of it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Let's just read 15 and 16. Let me show it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30. After giving the whole law that talks about how sin should be taken seriously, even punished seriously, this is what God says. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments. Why? That you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. You see, what he's saying is the law was given, you know, God is tough on sin because God hates sin because God knows that sin is tough on you. It robs us of the life that God wants us. Anytime you choose a sinful path to fulfill a hunger of your heart, whether it's the hunger for love or affection or happiness or, or joy or, or prosperity or whatever, you, you are going to choose a path that in the long run will cause way more pain and suffering. So God knows that. This is why God's always tougher on sin than we are. That's why Jesus gives her grace. And then he says, but don't do this. That's why God says that to us as well. Number four, last but not least, Jesus calls us then to be generous with both grace and truth. We want to be like in John 1.14, full of grace, full of truth. That's kind of my motto for life. In the daily appointments, the daily encounters, or in the prep for life groups, if you're doing a sermon-based discussion with a friend or with a life group, make sure you do that. I've inserted it every week. Also, you can get it online. But in you do, the very first week, what I ask you is this question. In general, are you more of a grace-oriented person or a truth-oriented person? Because what I find is only Jesus seems to have the bland. Most of us tip one way or the other. Some of you may think, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at giving grace. I always give everyone a second chance. Oh, I'll just overlook it if they sin. I can, I'm very forgiving, very merciful. I always feel sorry for people. I'm full of grace. But don't ask me to confront someone about their sin. 
or speak truth. Other people, on the other hand, say, you know, man, I have a hard time forgiving people. I don't, I, you know, until, until they hear the truth, I'm not going to forgive them. And, and they need to acknowledge what they did was wrong. And, and maybe then I'd forgive them. See, we're, because I just feel like I need to speak truth. I know people, and in fact, I know areas of theology that are definitely out of balance and they're all about truth, but they never teach grace. And I know other churches that are all about grace and they want to welcome and forgive everyone and, and call everything right, but they don't tell the truth. And, and God condemns both. And He says, man, let's be like Jesus. Let's say to the woman, sweetheart, I love and forgive you. I will protect you from these people, even in the church, okay? Because some of the worst ones are in the church. So I will protect you from them, but don't do this. It's destructive. And it's sin. Churches today are giving up on truth. Other churches need a heavy dose of more grace. I think at Seacoast, what we're trying to do is be a church where people experience both. So as we move forward into communion in just a few minutes, we're going to have a sweet communion time, unrushed, in which what I want you to do is take some time to reflect back on this story to say, you know what, so where do I need God's truth delivered to me with grace? Where do I need that today? Because this story is not about that woman. This story is about Dale. This story is about you. We all have sins that we would be ashamed if they were announced to the whole world and were brought in front of the whole church and, and we're on trial and we all have that. But what's the application to you today? I think it probably falls into four categories that line up with my four points. For some, it's the need for more humility. That we quit being self-righteous, stuck-up, proud-of-ourselves Christians who think we've picked ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We need to not be like these religious leaders. We need to be humbled by grace. For others, we need to be honest about our sins, you know, because we've got secret sins that we aren't being honest about and we don't let even our closest friends and mentors know about them and, and they plague us because we're not honest. Some Maybe there's some honesty you need to just face and call out, yeah, that is sin and I need to stop doing that. Uh, for others, maybe it's love. We just... Don't have a lot of compassion for people different from us. People in Encinitas, we don't really want to love Encinitas. We'd rather they leave us alone so we can just be the church and do our thing. And for others, we really don't care for people that are gay or we don't care for people that are, that are sleeping around on their partner and uh, we don't care for people that are into drugs and we don't care for people that do this or do that or, you know, or, you know, or people, you know, whatever. You know, whatever you're hang up is the reality is i think jesus says i want you to i want you to realize that if you are there by grace alone then don't you reject the person who comes needing grace needing truth maybe we need more compassion 
Brothers, you just need forgiveness. You need to start by embracing the offer of His amazing grace and saying, oh God, thank you. Thank you that if you forgave this woman, I know, I know you will forgive me. There's no sin that Jesus didn't die on the cross for. The worst one that you thought about at the beginning of the sermon, the worst one you've done, not even the worst one that you've thought of doing but would never do. Grace, grace freely forgives it all. What a great calling we have to be a church full of grace and truth. So reflect on your own life, reflect on those four questions right now and begin to pray and say, Lord, which of those four do I need to focus on so that I learn how to live giving grace and walk in it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that as the band comes to lead us in a time of worship, as we begin to approach communion and the Lord's table, we do so to remind us there's nothing that we can do to earn grace. Grace, by definition, is a gift. It's a free gift of God provided through Christ at the cross, through His death and resurrection for our sins. Thank you that He died for all of our sins. Thank you that He died for this dear lady in Chicago who was renting her daughter. Thank you that he died for each of us and for the cities we live in, for the peoples of Africa, as well as Encinitas. So as we reflect, God, uh, we ask you to bring to mind the things we need to be honest about and experience your grace today in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to do communion a little differently. We've allowed plenty of time to worship for the next 10-15 minutes. There's a cross that's been lit in the corner and um, sit, pray, listen. You don't have to sing or you can if you'd like. But ask God to refresh your soul with grace, to feed your hunger for grace. And then when you're ready, don't rush, please. When you're ready, go to one of the four tables around the room and serve yourself the bread and the cup, the reminders of Christ's body and blood that provides you with grace. And then if you'd like to pray for a minute, feel free to go over to the cross. You can go over there alone and kneel and pray. We'll have some of our leaders, our elders are going to gather over there also just to be available if you'd like to approach one of them and say, hey, would you pray with me today? And we'd love to pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body and blood shed for us, broken for us. As we approach communion and as we approach the cross, we do so only by your sweet grace. In Christ's name, amen.